1: Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Keith Flaw, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Sean Flanagan is from the Legatum Institute. We're talking about uh, the second annual edition of the Prosperity Index for the United States. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Les Government, and Doug Badger is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation we will be talking about COVID and federalism. It is July the 29th, and on this day in 1588 off the coast of France, Spain's so-called Invincible Armada was defeated by the English naval force under the command of Lord Charles Howard and Sir Francis Drake. After eight hours of furious fighting, a change in the wind direction prompted the Spanish to break off from the battle and to retreat towards the North Sea. In hopes of invasion crushed, the remnants of the Spanish armada began a long and difficult journey back to Spain. In the late 1580s, English raids against Spanish commerce and Queen Elizabeth I's support of the Dutch rebels in the Spanish Netherlands led King Philip II of Spain to plan a conquest of England. Pope Sixtus V gave his blessing to what he called the Enterprise of England, which he hoped would bring the Protestant Isle back into the fold of Rome. A giant Spanish invasion fleet was completed by 1587, but Sir Francis Drake's daring raid on the Armada's supplies in the port of Cadiz uh, delayed the Armada's departure until 1588 in May. On May 19th, the Invincible Armada set sail for Lisbon on a mission to secure the control of the English Channel and transport a Spanish army to the British Isle from Flanders. The fleet was under the command of Duke of Medina, Sidonia, and consisted of 130 ships carrying 2,500 guns, 8,000 seamen, and almost 20,000 soldiers. The Spanish ships were slower, less well-armed than the English counterparts, but they planned to force boarding actions if the English offered battle, and the superior Spanish infantry would undoubtedly prevail. Delayed by storms that temporarily forced it back into Spain, the Armada did not reach the southern coast of England until July the 19th. By that time, the British were ready. On July 21st, the English Navy began bombarding the seven-mile long line of Spanish ships from a safe distance, taking full advantage of their long-range heavy guns. The Spanish Armada continued to advance during the next few days, but its ranks were thinned by the English assault. On July 27th, the Armada anchored in an exposed position off Calais, France, and the Spanish Army prepared to embark from Flanders. Without control of the channel, however, their passage to England would be impossible. <clears throat> Just after mid- midnight on July the 29th, the English sent eight burning ships into the crowded harbor of Calais. The panicked Spanish ships were forced to cut their anchors and sail out to sea to avoid catching fire. The disorganized fleet, completely out of formation, was attacked by the English off the in- at uh, dawn. In a decisive battle, the superior English guns won the day and the devastated armada was forced to retreat north to Scotland. The English neighbor pursued the Spanish as far as Scotland and then turned back for want of supplies. Battered by the storms and suffered from a dire lack of supplies, the armada sailed on a hard journey back to Spain around Scotland and Ireland. Some of the damaged ships floundered at sea, while others were driven into the coast of Ireland and wrecked. By the time some of the uh, surviving fleet reached Spain in October, half of the armada's were lost, and some 15,000 men had perished. Queen Elizabeth and her decisive defeat of the Invincible Armada made England the world-class power and induced effective long-range weapons into Navy warfare for the first time, ending an era of boarding and close-quarter fighting. So even in the day, 1588, it was technology, advances in technology that won the day. Such an interesting story. The optimistic take is what White House launched yesterday's masking circus to distract from the impending collapse of its legislative agenda. Wherever the mandates came from, it certainly had nothing to do with data or science. Masking kids in school is a crime against science and children. So the Biden administration is uh, recommends it universally. What new evidence? They don't say, but they didn't stop the political uh, choreography. Kamala Harris proclaimed D.C. an orange zone of substantial transmission and handed out masks to White House Press Corps, who all immediately donned the tools of ignorance, (laughs) the CDC case metrics are completely arbitrary, inappropriately low, because they were set before widespread testing and now irrelevant, because the vaccines have decoupled cases from clinical relevance. What in the world is going on? Kids are not uh, and never have been at risk, and every adult who wants the vaccine can get it. There's zero case, nil, for this mandate. Our recommendation is for schools and states to ignore CDC recommendations as they continue to be more wrong than they are right. So true. President Joe Biden's approval rating has sunk uh, to its lowest point since he gained office, according to a Rasmussen poll. The July poll conducted among 1,500 likely voters found that 46% of Americans approve of Biden's job as president, while 52% disapprove. The poll further found that 26% said they strongly approve of Biden's presidency so far, while 47%, 42% strongly disapprove. That's a, big, that's a big number. The new poll comes barely a month after Biden's approval rating slipped below 50% in June, according to the Monmouth University poll. Biden's drop in approval appears to be due to a, lock, a loss of confidence in his economy and on ongoing skepticism of his policies at the U.S.-Mexico border. He sought to shift the blame for his immigration surge at the southern border. His administration first argued that the surge was simply an annual occurrence, but the argument faded quickly as it became clear that the 2021 surge was far larger than in previous years. The head of uh, state, both Guatemala and Mexico, have argued that Biden's policies are largely responsible for the wave of immigration. However, Biden, of course, rejects such blame. Popularity going down. That of course translated to more difficult uh, to push through uh, his legislation uh, and his agenda. Uh, Twitter suspended various 2020 election audit accounts on Tuesday for violating the Twitter rules. The Maricopa County uh, audit account, audit war room, and accounts for audits taking place in Wisconsin, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Georgia all have been suspended. Showing a message stating "account suspended." and Twitter suspends accounts that violate the Twitter rules while trying to access them. The Maricopa County audit account has over 100,000 followers and would post updates on the progression of the forensic audit approved by the Arizona Senate. Democrats and Maricopa executives have attacked the audit as partisan and meant to sow distrust among voters in the election process. Republicans argue that audit is necessary to instill trust in the election process after various issues with mail-in ballots have been discovered. Canvassing is necessary. It's one of the ways to know if problems are real problems or just clerical mistakes. There are 74,000 about, uh that came back, but there's no indication that they were ever sent out by the county. So in other words, they got back in the mail something they never sent. The suspension of election audit counts comes weeks After former President Donald Trump filed a class-action lawsuit against Google-owned YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter for banning his social media accounts, the Republicans argue that the big tech companies are censoring conservative points of view on their platforms. On Monday, Arizona State Senate uh, Karen Finn, President Finn, and Arizona Senate Judiciary Chairman Warren Peterson issued a new subpoena for the Maricopa County's Board of Supervisors to turn all over all ballot envelopes, images, voter records, routers, router images. The deadline for the turnover is on Monday. So, you know, here we go. These audits certainly uh, putting the fear of God into the Democrats because I think some of the misdeeds that they did uh, on November 3rd will be discovered. But in the meantime, uh, the audits go on and now Facebook is running cover for this administration. very sad indeed. Something should be done about uh, these uh, social media companies. While the revolt by parents over critical race theory being taught in schools is now nationwide, it's also so universally unpopular that it threatens to reverse the gains the Democrats made with independent voters last year. A headline in Political uh, sums it up, moderate and suburban voters Share concerns about education changes and say National Democrats dismiss their arguments. No one is worse on the issue than the current White House occupant. Many parents were furious in May when White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki sneered to reporters, I don't think we would think that educating the youth and next future leaders of the country on systemic racism is indoctrination. (laughs) Of course it is. Unbelievable. There is no systemic racism. The, her, the premise for her statement is foolish. In Democratic-leaning Palm Beach County, Florida, the school board recently adopted a statement that would eliminate white advantage. Parents flooded a school board meeting to protest. The majority of Democrats on the school board gave in and voted to edit the white advantage phase out of the statement. But then the local Democratic Party formally censured those school board members, saying that they had betrayed the squirrels party's values. Two school board members declared that they would leave the Democratic Party as a result. The protests are spreading from coast to coast. We continue to maintain that the way to avoid having the public schools become a vehicle of indoctrination of any kind is to allow school choice so parents can send their children to a school they believe reflects their values and may actually give them a real education in the basics, like a classical education. Unbelievable. Critical race theory has no place in school. Well, so much more to talk about. We're going to hold, uh, come back to some of this stuff later. Uh, this segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Keith Law, co-founder of the terrific organization, the Florida Citizens Alliance. That more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden. Lullaby's diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lullaby's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lullaby's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host,
1: Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social, a new refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app from the ChoiceSocial.us website, ChoiceSocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Sean Flanagan from the Legatum Institute. We'll be talking about the U.S. Prosperity Index. Right now, we have with us Keith Flaw, co-founder of a terrific organization, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Keith, thank you so much for joining us. Morning, Bob. Good morning, Keith. Tell us about the Florida Citizens Alliance.
2: Well, we're a grassroots organization. Uh, we've been around for, I guess, about eight years. Uh, we focus on K-12 through education, trying to... Uh, both improve the system, but really uh, encouraging parents who are paying attention to take advantage of the many much better alternatives than government schools. Um, So we're fighting the indoctrination, the critical race theory, the pornography that's in our schools, and we're uh, strongly supporting solutions like the various scholarships and the homeschooling.
1: Uh, Goflca.com is the website. Goflca.com. Uh, Again, doing great things and having great influence in Tallahassee, both with the governor and with the uh, legislative body. So, Keith, congratulations on what you're doing. So I understand that uh, we now have a uh, a budget has been proposed or passed for Caillou County. Uh, Any thoughts?
2: It it goes through two cycles, or two two, uh, votes, and the first vote was taken last Tuesday night. And it's a $1.2 billion budget. Uh, it has a slight tax increase rather than uh, what we encourage to at least go back to the, uh, the rollback rate. Uh, but, but that aspect of it's not huge. What was striking to me as I sat and listened to, them, uh, to these bureaucrats, uh, they really don't understand what's going on around them. Uh, in this last legislative cycle, um, a bill was passed on scholarship programs, and the governor signed into law like three, three weeks ago or so a new law that, that makes uh, almost 50% of our 2.8 million kids in government schools eligible for private schools. Um, you know, if, if and, and I made the comments and they just kind of went right over their head. So what happens when uh, we have, and I've heard various numbers, they've been telling us that they only, their 48,000 is down to 43 for the budget they use 47% thousand students. They didn't explain where it came from. Mm -hmm. But what happens when those numbers of students uh, go off to these scholarships and they have 25,000 students? Uh, They've got a $394 million capital budget building brand new schools. Uh, You know, we've got half the population going to those public schools uh, because they're not competitive. That's the key point. They're Mm -hmm. not competitive. Uh, Shouldn't they be focusing their energy not on building larger staffs but on uh, reducing those staffs and plowing that
1: uh, that money. Yeah, a point of and, information. Uh, just out of curiosity. So, what funds the scholarships of kids uh, choose to go take advantage of the uh, choices, school choice that they have? Uh, is, does that money come out of the budget locally, or does it come from a different pot?
2: uh no, it really comes out of the uh, the state if they lose those students then you know, they don't get the f i i think it's called the f t f p uh, they don't get that annual round numbers eight thousand dollar funding from the uh from the state per mm. student so they would clearly lose that aspect of it yeah uh, but it's huge i mean just step back and and that's what I'm trying to encourage them to do. Uh, step back and look at the, a bit of the macro view, uh, and it's very clear that that uh, this governor um, is is on a track to uh, for for an ESA, which is a Education Savings Account, where the money follows the child. Yeah. Uh, so these are going to put huge competitive pressures on what, what I call the, the union driven monopoly, and um, these school board members just don't get it. And they're not, just,
1: they're not seeing the writing on the wall. Right. It's,
2: that's, it's it's typical for monopolies, by the way. They're the last ones to realize they're they're the dinosaur in the room. Yeah. But um, it's it's a shame that they're gonna waste a lot of our tax dollars in the process.
1: And just think about that. One point two billion dollars for a reduced number of students, that comes out to about what, twenty two, twenty three thousand dollars a student. Right. That's as high as anywhere in the nation. It perhaps the highest in the nation. And uh, the quality of education, as you said so many times on the, on the show, I do recall one number, 58% of fifth graders can read it at grade level. So we're not getting the job done. Right. No, that's
2: absolutely true. And, and then we're bringing in all of the nation, you know, the critical race theory, uh, uh, the LGBTQ. Uh, you know, and and the, uh, the LGBTQ stuff is an interesting one um we we believe that you ought to be compassionate uh for folks that have a different uh sexual uh, identification if you will but you don't need to force that on every child starting in kindergarten uh to confuse the hell out of pardon my French
1: yeah what 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 would be wrong with just saying that you should respect every one of God's creatures and right. and, and not uh you know uh, be be uh uh intolerant of anybody. So it just doesn't make any sense.
2: Yeah, they shared with us a study, and we don't have time to go into great detail. But, um, you know, we have forty-seven, forty-eight thousand kids in governments in Collier schools. Uh, 4,000 of those kids want to be called by a nickname. So, you know, you're Robert versus Bob. That's a nickname. Uh-huh. So of the 4,000, 20 of them want to be called by an alternate gender name. And of the twenty, half of those have have been coded as having a, 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 a mental illness. So w- we're indoctrinating the whole base of our kids with LGBTQ stuff right down to kindergarten, because of ten kids out of forty-eight thousand or whatever the number is. It's hard to find that number, by the way, but because they're hiding it.
1: But. Yeah. Well, that's it's
2: just fascinating. I mean, it's it, it it's just
1: beyond common sense. It certainly is, uh, Keith. Hey, before. Well, I understand that you filed a lawsuit?
2: Yes we did. Uh, uh, We um, we signed a retainer three months ago with uh, Pacific Justice Institute um, and we we filed a lawsuit over in Broward County for failure to respond to a public records request on on, uh, the 58 pornographic materials that we're trying to identify and we've actually put out now public records requests to all 67 counties Mm. Uh, on those fifty-eight books and Broward was the f- uh, drug us along for about a month and a little over a month and so enough was enough and so uh, Pacific Justice Institute on our behalf uh, filed a lawsuit last Monday.
1: Congratulations. Uh, stepping it up, Keith. I'm just really proud of the work that you're doing. Uh, and What do you hope to accomplish uh, once you get this information?
2: Well, we have the pornography report that's on our website. People can just go to the website search bar and type in the words porn report, and you get the report that we did two years ago.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Uh, but as we head into the next legislative cycle, it is two years old. And so uh, we've identified an additional uh, uh, another uh, 17 books, I think it is, on top of the 44. Uh, so we're, we're going out with that whole list of 58. And what we're trying to do is find out whether... Uh, calling attention to this in the first round uh, reduced any of those. That's point number one. Uh, but we're also uh, hope uh, intending to demonstrate that the the, the amount of uh, sexually explicit novels are actually going up. And and the the most important aspect of updating this report is helping parents understand what's going on, uh, which in fact when they find these materials makes them eligible for the Hope Scholarship. So uh, then we come back to that monopoly power and. The, and in these schools losing their kids and then is just not willing to, to, to do what's necessary to get focused on the basics. So,
1: Keith Flog again, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. The website is goflca.com, goflca.com. Keith, you're doing great work. I really appreciate your taking time here to come on the show. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Take care. Have a great weekend. Bob.
1: You as well. Thank you so much. All right. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Sean Flanagan. From the Gotham Institute, that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Show, and now here's your host, Bob
1: Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse. I proudly served as board chairman for the first 15 years, and uh, now bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. I hope you'll visit the website gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Seaton Modley, the founder and president of Less Government. Right now, we have with us Sean Flanagan. He's with the Legatum Institute. Sean, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me on, Bob.
1: Always a pleasure, Sean. Tell us about the Legatum Institute.
3: Yeah, so we're we're a global uh, think tank. We're based in London, but with a global remit. Uh, Our mission is about helping to create the pathways from poverty to prosperity. And by prosperity, we mean a combination of both economic and social well-being, and it's both of those things working hand-in-hand to lead to truly flourishing lives. And we, for the past 15 years, have been measuring that globally uh, across 167 nations around the world. It's covered 99.4% of the world's population. But each nation looking at all the different aspects of prosperity and how that's been changing over the past decade.
1: Yeah, very interesting. I've had a chance to review the U.S. Prosperity Index. And what are some of the metrics uh, that uh, you use to measure prosperity?
3: So we've got three broad domains in the index. Uh, Inclusive societies, open economies, and empowered people. Uh, Within inclusive societies, here we're looking at the things that are necessary to create a cohesive society uh, and those things that can destabilize the society. So we look at things like safety and security, personal freedom, governance, and social capital. The open economies looks at all of those aspects that are needed to create a strong economy. So here we're looking at a strong business environment you know, being able to access finance, good rates of startup entrepreneurship, but also having the right infrastructure in terms of, you know, good communications, transport, uh, as well as uh, resources, electricity, and water. And then finally, the Empowered People domain is the lived experience. And here we're looking at things like people's living conditions, uh, their health, uh, education, and the natural environment. So across all of these things, which are underpinned by, in our global index, 299 indicators, all uh, from sort of publicly available sources. In the U.S. index, it's slightly different. We're using data that's available state by state, um, but capturing the same aspects. And in there, we've got 215 indicators within the state and county level
1: index. Yeah, very thorough indeed. It's extremely thorough. Now, uh, before we talk about the U.S. index, how does how are we doing in the world?
3: So the U.S. ranks, interestingly, 18th. Uh, overall for prosperity out of 167 nations. It's three or four paces behind the UK. I can promise there's no massaging of the data there. Uh, But interestingly, when you look at the open economies domain, which is one of the three domains of the index, the US, as you'd expect, uh, you know, is uh, ranked seventh in the world. Uh, It's got a very strong and open economy. Uh, But when you look at some of the other broader aspects of prosperity, and we believe it's important, often prosperity is purely considered in economic terms, but we believe it's much broader. And when you look at things like health and safety and security, uh, so the U.S. ranked 66th for safety and security globally and 59th for health. And so those two sort of slightly weaker performances on those two pillars the the U.S. down to 18th overall.
1: It's so ironic. We spend so much money on healthcare, <laughs> and we rank so poorly in terms of results or on the on the index. So uh, I looked at uh, Florida at ranking in the state. I think we ranked 31st among the states of uh, of prosperity. I was shocked because I thought we were doing pretty darn well here in Florida, at least right here in Southwest Florida. I certainly feel that's that's the case. Uh, and then I think I think I read that Massachusetts was number one
3: that's correct
1: yeah so yeah that's so interesting well, to me because it, it it defies it defies um common sense if you if you will so maybe you could explain to why the disparity there and 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 how this happens what is it about Massachusetts that makes it so attractive
3: so when we in constructing the u.s index we we, we took our global index uh, our global taxonomy and then applied it to the US and we, we draw upon the expertise because um, we you know we're, as I mentioned earlier we're based in London so we're not necessarily experts in US prosperity. So we did draw upon 40 uh, experts from health, you know, uh, education from academia, research institutes, think tanks, and they, they helped us sort of construct the index. So we've used publicly available data uh-huh. uh, across each of these 11 pillars and 48 policy focused elements. And within each element, there's a basket of between four and eight indicators that sort of best proxy that element, if you like. Um, and so when we put all those things into the mix, you know, we get the, 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 the rankings. Um, we do find uh, that the northeastern states generally perform the best, but not universally so. We get, you know, we get the likes of Utah uh, and also Wisconsin doing, doing well, um, but, and, and the southeastern states generally doing, uh, you know, are the weakest performing. But, you know, there Florida does back the trend, it's, and it's actually the most improved state over the past decade. Uh, of all states so, and it's written five places in the rankings as a result so you know it, its prosperity is strengthening and also strengthening uh, above and beyond uh, you know the average for the rest of the states
1: yeah so uh, how do you ho- what do you hope to accomplish in other words how do you want this information to be used and w- what is its intent
3: uh, so we've created this or we've tried to create this in a way that's useful to policymakers uh, and often we find, uh, as same in the UK, here as well, often those involved in policymaking can often be focused very much on their own area, so be it health or education. Uh, and what we hope through the index is a kind of curation of information into a, a framework which is helpful to sort of look at, you know, people's lives more holistically. So it, it's a, it can be useful to policymakers, but it can be useful as a collaboration tool as well in bringing the different parts of, those that make decisions together to help, uh, you know, provide a sort of dashboard of all the, all the different things. So it's useful for policymakers, but we also think it's hopefully useful to business leaders, you know, around the open economy, looking at all of those things that are necessary to create strong businesses. Um, but also the philanthropists and, and general public, you know, in terms of being an accountability tool to hold those who govern us to account. Are they delivering on their promises that they've, that they've made to us?
1: Uh-huh. So interesting. So uh, now, did you say that you've been doing this for fifteen years?
3: The global index, yeah, we've been doing. We're, we're, doing, we're currently convening our fifteenth uh, global prosperity index, which will be published in in November. This is our third year of doing the uh, U.S. index, um, and we did when we first published in two thousand and nineteen. It was state by state. Last year, we introduced the county level index for for 12, uh, eight selected states. Sorry, in this year, we've added four more states. So including Florida. So we've now got a county level index for the 67 counties in Florida as well. And, and that's really important I think because you know places like Florida are huge uh, contain a large you know a large population base very diverse different communities and you know when you look at the index and see how prosperity uh, in Florida translates across Counties, it does vary very significantly, and that that we again think that's useful information to to inform
1: the best policies. It most definitely is. I'm going to refer our listeners to your website, Legatum Institute. One word: L E G A T U M. Legatum Institute. Uh, dot. Uh, what is it? Uh, U.S. Dot com I guess it is, com And uh, just take a look at this uh, Prosperity Index, U.S. Prosperity Index. It's really, really interesting and uh, a lot of great information. Sean, I just genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Just,
3: just to mention, um, people can go to our main website, or there is actually a dedicated website for the index, usprosperity.net.
1: USProsperity.net is the website. Okay, great, Sean. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Bill. Good to talk to you. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Seat Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: Bob Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied people back to work and uh, off of welfare. The website is goflc, um, excuse me, uh, thefga.org rather. Uh, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Doug Badger from the Heritage Foundation. Right now, we have with us Seton Motley. Seton is the founder and president of Less Government. Seton, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Good morning, sir.
1: Good morning, Seton. Tell us about Less Government.
4: Yeah, we exist reduce the size, scope, of and influence of government, and it'll be a while. <laughs>
1: It certainly will. But you're doing some great work, Seton, in, in the effort, to insp- and asp- aspiration you. to do it. So uh, your latest column is D.C., the home of ridiculous hearings and terrible ideas. Very timely. Maybe you could tell us about it.
4: Yeah, of course. The, the big talk in political circles these days is the stupid January 6th uh, show trial where it's completely one-sided and mm-hmm. McC- Kevin McCarthy, the Senate Minority Leader, pointed two Republicans who were actually going to ask real questions like, gee, who killed Ashley Babbitt? Where are the thousands of hours of surveillance tape that the Democrats haven't released? Um, You know, hey, Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker, you're the boss of the Capitol Police. Why didn't they have more, they asked for more, uh, personnel on January 6th, why didn't you give it to them? Uh, you know, all kinds of good questions yeah. that are not going to be asked at this ridiculous sham trial. Right. And one of the other purposes, one of the many purposes this sham trial uh, serves is there are, of course, other congressional hearings going on, and there are, a lot of them are absurd too. And one of them is there's a two portions of a prospective bill that will cap interest rates that that loan uh, institutions can charge. Well, as we know, wage and price controls don't work. Uh, if you want, you know, and what you're going to do, just like everything else, is you're going to cause shortages of loans. Right. Because you're going to, when you cap wages, you sh- you cause shortages of employees. When you cap gas prices, you cause shortages in gasoline. It's called math. And they're having this hearing today, actually, this morning, 10 a.m. Eastern, in the Senate. And I just, you know, this is another one of those things where it's not getting any publicity. It's a dumb idea. and It's a dumb idea. I found an article that 40 centuries of price caps, (laughs) a history of failure. I mean, this is not, hey, this is a new idea. Let's try it out and see what happens. We know the end of the story and the senate is considering it anyway and they're having a hearing on it and that hearing is getting no uh attention because all the attention is going to this ridiculous show trial in the house um and there's this group the the national consumer law center and uh, they just been uh, their name had popped up for years and I finally said well they seem to be involved in a lot of things well i <laughs> I, I I did I researched their website, and the exact same percentage cap that the Senate bill would impose is the exact same percentage cap that the NCLC put in a 2013 quote-unquote study saying this is a great idea. Mm. So th- this group, which of course, shocker, is funded by... Very lavishly by George Soros. It was actually started with government money in the Great Society in the in the nineteen sixties. LBJ's terrible idea of masses the war on poverty. Guess what? Poverty won. Um, And now they exist on private funds. But you know, a a group that's founded with government money is going to be a government advocate, and they're advocating for government. Interest rate caps, and, you know, just to show how influential they are, they write a paper in 2013 mm-hmm. that says, hey, this should be the cap on interest rates. And this is, by the way, the, not the first congressional attempt to do this. There was a 2019 bill with the exact same cap number from the E3 cap report um, that, that was proposed and then it didn't get passed. Um, and now here it is back with a Democrat-controlled Senate and a Democrat, I mean, Congress, House and Senate, and a Democrat president. And th- these uh, th- this, this magical NCLC number has reappeared yeah. in the legislation, uh, which means this crazy group may be writing. The legislation, yeah, exactly.
1: So, a terrible uh, idea. Uh, see, I mean, people write a lot of papers, a lot, a lot, of stuff out there, white papers and so forth by think tanks. But how did this one make it to the top of the pile to start leading legislation?
4: That's right. That, that's like you said. There are a lot of organizations issuing a lot, extruding a lot of ideas out there. Right. And this one is for the second, at least the second Congress in a row. I didn't go p- back past the one sixteenth. Um, This is is currently the 117th. It may have been in previous bills. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Two cycles in a row, two Congresses in a row, their magic number appears in legislation sponsored by Democrats. You're right. Of all the... Of all the gin joints in all the world, how did this cap rate end up in my bill?
1: <laughs> exactly right. And, and any time you have George Soros in 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 the financing of anything, you know it's not good. You know it's it's going to somehow it's a be terrible destructive.
4: terrible idea, yes. It's a terrible idea factory. D.C. is a terrible idea factory, and they're getting them from a terrible idea uh, institution, the National Consumer Law Center.
1: Yeah, I can't help myself, but just got to mention, you know, quite frankly, in my opinion, uh, Nancy Pelosi orchestrated this entire thing with the Capitol Police, and now she's holding a hearing. She's trying to figure out. Well, what's, of course, it's all going to end up deflecting.
4: Uh, you know, you mentioned this, and it's very true. I mean, we've now found out that the alleged plot to kidnap uh, Michigan Governor Whitmer yeah. was almost entirely hatched, concocted, and proposed by FBI informants.
1: Yeah, I believe not,
4: a- not random whack jobs. But FBI-sponsored whack jobs.
1: Exactly. Seaton Motley and in the... So that, fa- and,
4: that, and that, of course, begs questions about the January 6th event, exactly. which is, by the way, the only conservative riot in about 50 years.
1: Seaton <laughs> Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. Visit lesgovernment.org. Seed, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you very much, sir. My
1: pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up. Uh, We're going to be visiting with Doug Badger. He is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll be talking about COVID and federalism. Thank God for federalism now with with all the things that are going on. We're going to be doing that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting
1: Network.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show, and now here's your host,
1: Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a uh, commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, and limited government and the rule of law. We have with us, I hope, uh, Doug Badger. Doug is a, is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Doug, is that you? Doug, are you there?
5: Yeah, Bob. How are
1: you? <laughs> Good, thank you. I, I picked the uh, potted you up on the micro on the uh, uh, on the uh, site here, and it it sounded like you'd uh, gone away. So I'm happy you're back. Uh, Doug, by the way, is out of the country right now, and uh, we're just grateful that you're here. So tell us about the Heritage Foundation.
5: Well, the Heritage Foundation was founded in the early '70s as a conservative uh, think tank. You know, we have a lot of groups like the Brookings Institution, the Commonwealth Fund, and probably a dozen others that come at public policy issues from a left-wing perspective, certainly a center-left perspective. And the Heritage Foundation tries to present a conservative uh, perspective grounded in the facts, grounded in the data uh, on matters of public policy.
1: Uh, heritage.org, I believe is the website, heritage.org. Well, you wrote a very interesting piece this week about COVID and federalism. Maybe you could tell us about it.
5: Sure. There's a a lot of thought out there that what's wrong with the U.S. response to the uh, COVID pandemic is federalism. That is allowing states and localities to make the about things such as mask mandates and school closures and the like. The Journal of the American Medical Association, for example, editorialized that when our collective state relies on speed, efficiency, and unity, federalist ideals fall flat. Uh, divided government creates unnecessary challenges for residents of states that are too slow to act or take up federal policies. the Heritage Foundation believes in constitutional federalism, and the paper that uh, my colleague Bob Moffitt and I wrote took a look at the response to uh, the pandemic and found that actually federalism was a strength, not a
1: weakness. You know what? uh, Quite frankly, Doug, uh, we live in Florida. I am so grateful for federalism, and I'm so grateful for a strong governor who's making, I consider, Very, very good decisions under uh, during this COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, Right now, uh, the government is preparing to mask everybody up again. They have this non sequitur of a a policy that kids should wear masks, that we should wear masks indoors, in spite of the fact that people have been uh, uh, vaccinated. So, uh, to me, I'm just so grateful that we have federalism. It's it's a you know each state's a petri dish dish in terms of experimentation and uh, doing what they want. And uh, thank goodness we're not being bogged down by federal policy.
5: No, I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the, the assumption of um, people who criticize federalism and say we need more centralization of policy is that the federal government, and in particular the CDC, gets things right. Um, we recount in our paper a whole series of things that the CDC got wrong. Everything from bad data to underestimating the uh, the severity of the pandemic, not accepting the Chinese government's word that it was not transmissible from human to human, developing defective tests, and then prohibiting anyone else from bringing tests to market for a period of time. The list goes on and on. You cite most recently, CDC has flip-flopped over the past several days on the issue of whether vaccinated people uh, can go about their business uh, without masks and so forth. They've now suddenly come out and said, well, actually, vaccinated people can't do that, and it depends on what area of the country. So CDC hasn't gotten it right. You cite Florida, Governor DeSantis, who often has departed from the CDC recommendations in setting policies for the state. When we look at the four most popular, state, popular states, populous uh, states, New York, California, Florida, and Texas, what we see is that the two that deviated most from CDC recommendations, Florida and Texas, had as good or better health outcomes measured as COVID-related deaths per hundred thousand persons, and much, much better economic outcomes, California and New York's unemployment rate doubled between the month before the pandemic and and a year later, and they ranked 49th and 50th among the 50 states and District of Columbia in unemployment rates. Florida actually fared quite well, and that's just one measure of the difference in performance by avoiding or deviating from the CDC uh, recommendations. Florida avoided long-term school closures that had done inestimable harm to children and brought about other uh, social uh, and, um, and really medical adverse outcomes. So, absolutely, the federalism has been a strength of the pandemic response. I wish CDC had done a better job, and we are doing a better job right now. But the reality is you need people closest to their elected representatives, state, county, local officials, uh, to make decisions uh, that understand and, and uh, appreciate the particular circumstances in their communities that federal government really doesn't do a very good job of, of understanding or appreciating.
1: Right. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, when I take a look at these, uh, the, the latest... Uh, mandates or, or the uh, opinions coming down from the CDC the defy logic there seems to be no science at all behind in other words it's just uh, shut up and just do it It's <laughs> pretty much their lo- it would be uh, very reassuring for example if uh, fauci and uh, the CDC would come out and say look here are the, here are the things that are going on these are the, this is the science behind all this and this is what we recommend uh, uh, but uh, it's, it seems to so have politicized.
5: Yeah, I mean, they're really asking us to accept their recommendations, even when they change abruptly, on the basis of their authority, not on the basis of science and evidence. Uh, this change in saying, for example, that uh, the vaccinated people now have to wear masks, depending on where they live in the country, the not clear on where those areas of the country are, where Um, That came out of nowhere, and all they will say is that they have some unpublished data, a study, that they have not released and really haven't even described, but presumably the the results are are so overwhelming that, um, you know, now suddenly vaccinated people have to act as though they're unvaccinated. Let's
3: see the study. Yeah.
5: Tell us, don't, don't tell us what your new policy is. Tell us why the new policy makes sense and why we should follow it.
1: Well, I'll tell you, uh, yeah, uh, uh, an old saying is uh, in the absence of good information, we tend to make things up. And let me tell you what I've made up. The vaccines aren't working. <laughs> and they're, Now they're just kind of in a panic mode trying to figure out what are we going to do now?
5: Yeah, I mean, all of the published studies on this to date, every one that's actually been peer-reviewed and published in journals, has found that vaccinated people have lower viral loads, that is, carrying less virus, and therefore are less likely to transmit that virus to others. CDC now has has a study, again, someday I suppose we'll see it, that finds the opposite. Yep. that finds that, at least with the Delta variant, uh, vaccinated people carry high viral loads. Well, that leads to the question that, that you raise: What does this mean about the efficacy of vaccines? CDC doesn't track so-called breakthrough infections, cases where people who are fully vaccinated uh, get the disease anyway. Um we don't know the extent to which these are occurring, uh, so it, it, it really it, it really does raise questions. I just I want to emphasize that um, the uh, the science that has been published to date says that the vaccines do work. Yeah, that they um, are are very effective in preventing infection and. Uh, and, and highly, even more effective uh, at uh, preventing serious illness and death in people who acquire uh, breakthrough uh, infections. That's what we know so far. But again, um, maybe when this new CDC data come out, it's it's conceivable that that will change. They certainly have not said that, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, their, their guidance, uh, it did change in a very, very uh, dramatic and abrupt way.
1: Absolutely, Doug. I, I know you're uh, n- uh, in an area of policy, not in the area of medicine. But you know, one question I have is how do they they have now this Delta variant. Do the tests really tell which uh, which type of virus people have? And I don't think they do. So the question I have is: is how do we know there's a Delta variant <laughs> anyhow? <laughs> quite frankly, I just, uh, I yeah, just. They- Go ahead, yeah, please.
5: I mean they they do track these, and 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 again, I, my area is public policy. I could look at the data and so forth, and uh, test whether what CDC is saying is credible, not credible, well supported, or poorly supported. Right. Um, I can't get into uh, molecular biology. I have a daughter who knows that I got you. But um, they, yeah, they are evidently when they um, when they type these viruses, they are able to tell. That uh, certain variations occur. The Delta virus uh, originated in India, and uh, I guess we can't identify viruses anymore by where they're first identified. So they've started assigning Greek letters. To them. <laughs> um, but yeah, they are able to say that the Delta variant is the dominant strain right now, All right. and is responsible for most cases in the U.S.
1: Yeah. Doug Badger, again, Senior Fellow in Domestic Policy at the Heritage Foundation. I encourage you to visit heritage.org. Uh, uh, is your study on uh, and paper with uh, Ron with Moffitt, uh, Robert Moffitt, is it on the uh, website?
5: Yes, it is. It's, uh, it's, it's on uh,
1: heritage.org. Heritage.org. Doug, I genuinely appreciate your comment here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thank you for inviting me.
1: My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to visit with uh, William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, Joel Griffith is also from the Heritage Foundation. Joel will be with us, as well as Dave Beagle, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. So looking forward to being with you tomorrow as well. I hope you'll join us. I uh, always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at bobharden at hotmail.com.